Welcome to Parenting Bites. This is Rebecca Levy of Kids Views. I'm here today with Amy Oztan of Amy Ever After. Hi. Hello. And Andrea Smith, our technology guru extraordinaire. Hello. Hello. Um, today on the show, we thought since Election Day is approaching very quickly, and I think people aren't paying such close attention to this election um, because it's the weird off-year election. I know here in New York, we don't really have a lot of um, big offices up except for public advocate, but we have a lot of things on our charter, which nobody knows, and nobody even knows that's like our city constitution. <laughs> nobody knows well, anything. Also, doesn't New York now have, for the first time, early voting? Yes, early voting. Which is so cool. Except it's so inconvenient, I can't even tell you. My well. early voting place is like two miles from my house. Like, I'm never going to do that. My voting place is three blocks from my house. So why would I? It's awful. But anyway, that's a different story. Um, but we thought in light of the election coming up, we would talk about how to spot all of the fake political ads, bot accounts, all those things that are flying around on social media and that have already begun for the 2020 election. Um, and so we are going to have a guest on who we've had on before, Michelle Chula Lipkin of the National Association for Media Literacy Education. Um, she's going to be joining us to teach us how to spot these fake ads, how to teach your kids to be smart about what they see online and how to make really good critical judgment calls and probably teach us a whole lot that we know about how to spot this and boy, how to shut it down if you know people who are sharing these ridiculous commercials and memes and whatnot. So we will be right back with Michelle. We are back with Michelle Chula Lipkin. She's the executive director of the National Association for Media Literacy Education, or Namely, right? Don't they say yeah, Namely? Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> Very well um, done, Rebecca. We are so happy to have you back on the show and this time to talk about, obviously, media literacy, but specifically, election season is, you know, right upon us and political ads and political videos and fake news sites. And I mean, this has just become, I hate to say it, but now the expected thing to happen, um, you know, with the election cycles and, and, and just in general, I guess that now we have to question everything we're seeing to a degree that I don't think anyone anticipated. Um, so we're happy to have you on to talk about Maybe also like why and how this happened, but really how people can be on the lookout for this and not be sharing and spreading disinformation um, and how they can talk to their kids about it. Great. This is such an important conversation. I really appreciate you guys being willing to have it because this is all I want to be talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's get started with a little bit, I don't know, maybe a background for people. I mean, I think there are people out there who don't really believe that it's happening to the degree um, just because it sounds so outlandish to people that videos can be fake, that you're watching mm -hmm. someone talk and that's not actually what they're saying. Yeah. So the deep fake conversation is, is fascinating. And, you know, I think just like to, to step back for, for a second, and I'm sure that you guys touch on this when you talk about social media and you talk about online life. The, the truth is, is that it's unprecedented. This time is unprecedented for a lot of reasons. But the biggest reason is just the sheer amount of information that we have at our disposal and the, the speed at which it gets to us. And those two factors kind of change the game completely, right? Because our brain can only process so much information in, in so much time. And there's such a, such a speed at which we want to share and want to get the word out there. And that speed and amount just, it just, leads to mistakes, right? Any, if you think of anything in life, right, the faster you do it and the more you want to do it, odds are there's going to be a lot of stupid mistakes, right? And so now our entire communication system is running that way. And I think that, um, you know, for, for me, when I look at all of it, when it comes to political ads, when it comes to elections, you know, the, these are real world consequences if we don't get a handle on how we process information as opposed to, you know, seeing some false information about a celebrity getting divorced or, you know, these mm -hmm. are silly things, but this is like real, real 
implications for democracy. So it has to be taken very seriously. And and I think um, when we are when we think about political ads, I don't know if you guys remember growing up, but I remember seeing political ads when I was younger. And I remember um, thinking, wow, these are really mean. Like I just remember <laughs> right. always like they're they're really mean. And they've just gotten so much worse. So I think Political ads to me out of all media content are really one of the the kind of meanest and most awful, right? Because they're really, truly just attack ads. And we have to be, we have to understand what those ads are trying to do and how they're trying to manipulate our emotions. But the truth is, is that all media is trying to manipulate us in some way, right? And so we have to be willing to ask questions and be skeptical, no matter what the media content is. Um, and, and I think that so much of the conversation right now about understanding information is certainly about misinformation and disinformation and deep fakes and how do we possibly process things that are so like so hard to tell whether they're real or fake i think that sometimes we have to remember that we also have a problem just processing information in general, right? That there's, we, we still need to know the questions that we need to ask, no matter what we're seeing on our social media feeds, um, not just political. Uh, and so we have to be willing to pause, to ask questions, to be skeptical. And we really have to go through all information now with a very skeptical eye. Um, and not that's not to say don't trust, but it's to ask questions and, and be willing to, to kind of develop your habits of inquiry. So let's say um, you are someone who's always just read the New York Times, um, or maybe you're someone who just always watches Fox News. Like, that's it. That's where you get all your information from. And now when you're on Facebook, um, you just tend, because you're always watching Fox News um, or sharing articles or posts from Fox News or other, you know, right-wing um, publications, or maybe it's left wing, whichever one it is, you are now only seeing things that reinforce this mm -hmm. point of view that the algorithm has figured out you like. <laughs> yes. Um, how do you even stop that from happening? Like, how can you as a person say, okay, I realize I need to get out of my bubble, or maybe this isn't right that everything I'm seeing is just reconfirming everything I think? Well, I think, first of all, you have to want to, right? Um, and we know some people don't want to see the other point of view. And so that's that's tricky. I think, you know, I run a media literacy organization. So the way that I look at these questions is from a media literacy perspective. So to me, the most important thing is that people understand the platforms which they are interacting with. So for me, that person who might only be looking at Fox News and then the algorithm is reading their likes and their desires and what they think they want to watch. Um, I want that person to understand the algorithm, right? I want them to understand the platform and I kind of want the platforms to take a little bit more responsibility on educating their users on how their platforms work. Um, and, you know, I can't say that you're going to be able to trick the algorithm, right? Algorithms are really, really smart. Um, but you would have to actively engage in uh, other sites, in following, in in making sure that your feed is more, um, more diverse and that you have to be an active participant on your feed to do that, right? Like you have to be willing to follow the sites and the news sources that you don't necessarily agree with so that the algorithm starts to read those kind of tendencies too with a person like you. The trick is, is that most people don't really want to do that, right? Most right. people don't, um, they go on these platforms to see their friends, to hear about um, things that are happening in their family and to get some information about the world that they want to live in, right? <laughs> That's why they go there. And so we also have to have a bigger conversation of what are these platforms for and um, what are we what are we using them for right and so you know Facebook this week came out with um, information about their new Facebook news um, and not platform but their tab tab yeah I was like that's the word tab and that's a really interesting conversation to have because do we want Facebook to be curating our news 
Um, do we want to be more in control over it? Although, are we really in control of it? Because it's Facebook's algorithm that's giving us the stuff that we are watching and reading. And, and so the reason that I'm kind of all over the place with this is that all of this stuff is really new. And I think that there's a lot of things that we haven't figured out yet about these platforms. You have to remember in 2016, people, most people didn't even realize that Facebook makes their money off advertising and the re the way they get their money is from the things that are data, right? right? Most people didn't know that. And that was three years ago. So now we're having really important conversations about the platforms and what they do and what their responsibility is and what regulations are. But, and, and it's difficult for a person just like me or you to really mess with this multi-billion dollar company, right? And the algorithms that they have in place. But if you are a person who really truly wants to see information that's going to make you question and think about your points of view, you have to actively follow and engage with people um, that don't think like you. You have to actively do that. And then you have to go to, you have to be willing to, you know, go to different sites, like not stay on the platforms, not stay on the social media platforms, go to different news sources um, and get more information. And that is hard because it's time consuming, right? You don't have a don't ton of time. Don't you think the vast majority of people don't have a ton of time though? I mean, that's what they do. You know, people don't watch the evening news like they used to, and they don't read a bunch of newspapers. They, they as you know, they're getting their news from these social media sites. So they're getting the news that their friends agree with or that their friends are posting and that they want to get. And it's really hard for people, especially given time constraints these days, to go actively seek out the opposing view. Um, and I feel like that's yes. something, you know, I was in the news business for 20 years. And before it became, mm -hmm. you know, one side or the other, it was very unbiased. And it wasn't necessarily the news people, we, the, the news that people wanted to hear that we were writing. It was the news people needed to know. And today it's very different. Today it's the news people want to hear about. And that is what I think has to change. Well, I think, I mean, the truth is, though, that even um, in kind of the glory days of journalism, news news outlets made choices, right? They made choices of who they were hiring. They made choices of what stories they were going to go cover. So they were also directing the information that we got, right? They were, I mean, that's part of their job is to identify what they believe is most important for people to know. Um, but there's still a, there's a still perspective and bias within that. Right. So, so news has always been something that um, has been given to us, you know, by news outlets. So when we were sitting in front of the evening news, when we were 12, it was still, we were still only hearing the stories that the, that news deemed important for us. And so the questions that we're asking, we should have always been asking about journalism and news and about, um, you know, the information, who's, who's in charge of the story, right? Who's telling the story? Yeah. Who's, who's leading the narrative? And I think the time, the, Amy, the point that you bring up about time is really important. And you could like really dig deep into like media ecology theorists here because there's the question of like, what does it even mean to be informed is so interesting, right? Because I agree that there's literally no way any human being can keep up with the amount of news and information that are out there. So what do we do? How do we feel informed? And I'm kind of a big fan of starting with some of those like, you know, 10 things you need to know today kind of newsletters or the podcasts that kind of, you know, like I listen to NPR up first just to kind of get a taste of what is what NPR and what the daily feels is important to cover. And I think that you have there's a lot of questions you have to ask as an individual. What is the information you you need to know? Uh, what is the information you want to know? And where are you going to get that information? And that inf that answer those answers are going to be different for everyone. I teach at Brooklyn College, and I, it was so funny because I made my students um, for a week read the uh, I don't know if you guys know the publication The Week, but they do a ten things you need to know today. And it's an email and you get it in your inbox and I made them do it for a week. 
And by the end of the week, they were so mad. They were so mad that uh, that these people were telling them like what information they're supposed to be getting and how do they know what's important. And all of them said, what's important to me is what's happening locally. Right. So they turned to New York one. They turned. That's to the what local I do. Station. Yeah. <laughs> and and that is a, like what I love about that is that they're they're t- like there's agency there. Right. They're deciding for themselves. And but they also have to know that even New York one decides the stories that need to be covered. Right. And so we always have to be asking our questions about what you know, what's missing, what what don't I know today that maybe would be important to know um, and constantly asking our questions. But the other point that I want to make is I think it's really important that we all as a society stop saying that we get our news from social media. Um, This is trickier now with Facebook's tab, but this idea is that we're getting our news through these platforms, but we're still getting them from a source, right? So I know that like every once in a while, someone in the older generation will say, oh, I heard this on Facebook. You probably didn't, actually. You probably heard it from the Washington Post or from BuzzFeed or from Breitbart, you know? And I think it's really important that we don't lose that connection to the source um, because, you know, Facebook and Twitter, they're not creating the news, right? They are definitely, they have a big role in this. um, Their algorithms show us what information they think we want, but they're not the source, of the information. And I think it's really important that we make sure that we even just change the language. Like you're, you're accessing news through Facebook, you're, um, you're getting news through sources that post on Facebook. Um, because I just, I think we have to be really clear about what our relationship with the social media platforms are. But let's talk. So it's really interesting because this week, I think this week it came out that there were all of these, you know, there's been a vacuum of local news, right? Local papers have yes. been shutting down in just these horrendous numbers. And there was an article this week on all of these local news sites that had popped up online for Michigan. Mm. And when you looked at them, and I think it was the Washington Post that did the story, but they, when you looked at all of them, they were identical and they were traced to a Russian, mm. you know, mm. bot news bot form. And they were very conservative. So they're creating, like to say, you know, to your point about a source, they're creating what looks like legitimate Mm -hmm. local news online, you know, newspapers, basically. And they're not. (laughs) And so here are people looking for their local news and what's important to them. And what they're getting is a total AI generated uh, right wing straight up like election interfering yes. sites meant meant to sway the populace in a swing state. Um, and how can you even begin to guard it? Because exactly what you said is happening, which is that people, especially older people are seeing this on Facebook and they're saying, but I saw it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Like for some reason, Facebook has garnered this level of trust as a source um, I don't know. It's almost like, you know, how people, no matter what, like they just want themselves in print, like that yes. just legitimizes it. People, I think, feel the same way, even online being in digital print that like it it must be true because it wasn't my neighbor telling me it's here on my screen. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is um, we are just so you know, and everyone out there knows that there's a lot of work being done and a lot of plans for work being done with senior citizens and media literacy. <laughs> um, that is one thing that um, has come up time and time again over the past couple of months in terms of how do we protect um, against uh, disinformation and misinformation within you know the context of the 2020 election, and how do we address the the fact that old the older generation were doing much of the most of the sharing of false information. So we have to address the education of that population. And especially because they're also the population that's voting. Like that's what I'm talking. We're talking real world consequences here, people. So, um, but my biggest fear when I hear stories like that is that I'm so afraid that people are just going to stop trusting everything. And that is so dangerous. Like that's so dangerous to journalism. That's so dangerous to democracy. And so that's why I always go back um, to media literacy. And I know I'm a broken record because, you know, it is going to be very difficult for the human eye, like for the regular public to really 
understand how to assess deep fakes. You know, some of these deep fakes, this is when the visuals are distorted, right? And there's a great actual piece with Claire Wardle. It's an opinion video from New York Times where she looks at deep fakes. And what she talks about is about how the t technology or the what technology can do is not half as dangerous as people's reaction to what technology can do. So this idea that our fear around these things and our reaction to misinformation and disinformation is far worse and far more dangerous than the actual disinformation and misinformation and deep fakes, right? If we start getting really scared, if we start not trusting anything, those have more consequences, right? Than just the actual misinformation. So I think that there's a lot of, the only answer I can think of in, in my world is education and making sure that we're educating people from the early stages to um, you know, it's kind of cradle, cradle to grave, right, is that these issues are not going away. And we have to do whatever we can to educate the population. That's why one of the reasons is we're working pretty closely with the platforms to advise them, because we also feel like some of these questions and some of these um, skills need to be somehow woven into the platforms themselves. You know, to me, it's like, okay, if, if Mark Zuckerberg won't take down false political ads, maybe he can put a bumper on either side telling people, you know, what to ask when they're about to watch this ad and how to think about it, you know, because we have to do something. Like, we can't just let this continue to be the Wild West. You know, the these are, these are dangerous problems that we have to solve. Um, and it's going to take education. It's going to take the platforms. It's going to take the government and regulations. It's going to take like, it's multifaceted, right? Um, but I think what you're also asking is like, what do we do as like just an individual on every, in every day, you know, in our everyday life when we're scrolling? Um, and it always comes down to slowing up right? It always, or I shouldn't say slowing up, it should be slowing down. Um, slowing down and not sharing. You know, if we just stopped sharing, if we didn't read the whole article, if we literally, if that's all we did, if that's all we did as a society is decide no one is going to share anything until they read the entire article or watch the entire piece. That would solve so many problems. I can't tell you how many conversations <laughs> I have with my husband where I'm like, I was like, that point of that article was bizarre. And he's like, oh, I don't know. I didn't read it. I just shared it with you. You just I'm saw like, the headline. You... Yeah, I saw the headline. I'm like, but it was literally like, you're yes. going to die tomorrow. I'm like, what is this? I'm like, so many people just share because of the head. They're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's true. And they share the article without ever even opening it. Or they comment on it without ever reading it, which is also my favorite. Oh, yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> like, but I also think that people don't even understand that the people who write the stories aren't necessarily the people that write the headlines, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't even understand the he like the process of writing headlines and what headline writers are trying to do. And those are the media literacy questions I think we need to, to ask ourselves. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons that we've had such a wonderful relationship with the journalism community since the 2016 election is because I think journalists more than any group understand the value of a media literate populace, right? Like if that's the right phrase, um, I haven't had my caffeine yet this morning. So, um, but this idea that journalism, journalism is a craft, right? Like it is, we were, we just had an event at Reuters where Steven Adler um, spoke to, you know, a hundred high school students from New York and he's the editor in chief of Reuters. And the way that he talks about journalism and the perspective that Reuters takes and the trust, you know, the, the kind of trust uh, indicators that they use and the way that they, you know, talk about journalism, I, you know, Amy, you could probably attest to this, is that most people don't even understand journalism, you know, and really what... Do you mean, Andrea, I don't want to keep taking credit for decades uh, in, in the in the journalism <laughs> industry because I have zero years. Oh, I'm sorry, Andrea, Andrea, sorry. That's okay. But Amy, I'm sure you have, you have probably a lot of experience reading the news. So oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure you have expertise. Sorry, guys. Um, so I think that that's the other thing is, and I, the only way we can do that is teach people what journal, like what good journalism is. And we, and we see a lot, there's so many amazing organizations that are right now, like working on this. And I think about, you know, um, 
First Draft News is doing a bunch of events around the country. We have like the News Collab in Arizona State. Uh, we're working with, um, you know, PBS Student Reporting Lab. Like there's so many people that are and organizations that are looking at this relationship of journalism and media literacy and civic engagement um, that I feel is kind of the key conversation we need to have at this time, especially with the 2020 election coming. Um, you know, these are really important conversations and, and, you know, we have to, we have to be prepared and I don't know how we're prepared without education and without, you know, having these conversations. But again, you're kind of talking about, you know, we've got a lot of great tips for people who want to do better. Mm -hmm. And I, I, just think that the much bigger concern is the people who don't want to do better. And I'm wondering, like, if, if you have that relative, if you have that friend who shares all of the stuff that is is fake or almost fake, you know, especially when they give legitimacy to stuff that that shows up on Facebook and Facebook has said that Breitbart News will be one of their trusted news sources in the news tab. Is there a place you can send them where you can gently say, OK, here's a list of places that do not have a right or left bias. They're just trustworthy. Um, you can just get the actual facts and then apply that to, you know, the, the other things that you're reading, like some, some, something neutral. Yeah. So what I, so what I do, um, I have a couple of cousins online. We all um, do. Yeah, we all do. I love them. And we, we have figured out a really nice balance of laughing at each other. Um, I usually fact check them and in the nicest way possible. Now, I think you have to know your relationship. You have to know whether it's better to do that direct message or online. Um, so if someone, you know, sends something out um, that is false or, you know, is misleading um, and I feel strongly that this is dangerous, you know, sometimes you gotta, you gotta pick your battles too, right? You can't be, mm -hmm. I always joke, like I can't be the media literacy police everywhere. Uh, although I, I usually am. Um, it's just, you send them either, you know, you go to Snopes, you go to PolitiFact and you fact check them to, and you simply say, you know, just, you know, simply say, listen, just wanted to share this article that, that shows that some of this information might not be, you know, a hundred percent true. And, you know, you put it out there. Now, do you engage in it? I mean, here's the bottom line is how, how can you engage with someone who doesn't believe in facts? Um, and, and that's difficult. And, and I think there's always going to be 25% or 30% of the population that we're never going to get to. I mean, we can't, we can't, like, there's just no way, you know, and that's always been the case. I always laugh at like, people who talk who are not Trump supporters that talk about his approval rating now and how they can't believe how high it still is, you know? And, you know, when Nixon resigned, he had like a 25% approval rating, right? Like, like there are some people that are never going to change their minds. And so I think we have to, so I would say fact check, gently fact check. Um, I do that even with my friends, um, you know, not, not that long ago, someone posted a picture um, of what appeared to be immigrant children with police officers. That to me was clearly not that, like you could just tell the way that, like I could just tell the photo seemed old. Um, the students, like the kids in it didn't seem, um, you know, to fit the, the kind of description of the immigrant child. And I, I did a, you know, a, a Google um, reverse image search and it was, you know, it was from like the 1980s and it was a picture of this class that had gone in to learn about like police officers or something. Mm -hmm. And I just shared the information with them and I, and they were so apologetic. They were like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Thank you so much. So there's also the group of people that are inadvertently sharing information that's false that want to hear from people and say, no, that's not, you know, I think there's, I'm sorry, I'm babbling because this is such a large topic. <laughs> the bottom line is there's a lot of people, I would say the great majority of people have good intentions and don't want to share stuff that's misleading or false. And those are the people that we need to focus on. And maybe even if you're, you're aiming these gentle rebuttals at people who don't 
believe you. Like I've had so many people say, oh, Snopes is fake. Nothing on Snopes is real. Like once you've decided that Snopes is fake, then I'm not sure there's any help for you. But maybe somebody else reading your feed will see it. Maybe somebody else in the conversation will see it. That's why I keep doing it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think you're right. You know, you can't argue with someone who's who says fact checking is is like also fake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, what you, like you can't like, what are you going to do? Like, and so you have to really pick your battles. And, and I don't mean to surrender. But again, the great majority of the Internet and these platforms are filled with people that are have good intentions. The other point that I would say is that there I really I would actively if you really feel like this is a very important issue for you like if you're the type of person that really really it bothers you that people share fake information there's a lot of great articles about this right there's a lot of great articles about how to think about deep fakes or how to analyze news feeds or so share those on your feed right like i am constantly um, sharing videos that are about media literacy, um, sharing like that opinion video for Claire Wardle talking about deep fakes. Like you can make your feed a media literate feed so that everyone that comes to your feed sees that too. So that I would also suggest like rather, you know, it's kind of like rather than looking at everyone else all the time, what can we do as an individual and in our social media presence to help the space a little bit. And that's why I would really, again, there's a lot of really good research. There's great videos. Like I think about um, Crash Course is a, is a web series that John Green and Hank Green um, have had for quite some time. And they just did two different series. One was about media literacy and a recent one was called Navigating Online Information. And it's great. It looks at all of these issues. They're like quick 10 minute videos. If all of us just shared those out, we would make a difference. Right. So I think that um, there's a positive to that. Like there's a proactive nature that um, of our participation in the social media platforms that we could be looking at rather than playing defense all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah. It's a really good point because I do tend to just play defense. And I know, I think that's our instinct, right? And and I, I think it's also because we, again, our intention is we just want people to know the truth, right? We just want people to know the facts. And what is hard about that conversation is the great majority of information that is out there today is opinion, right? Most of what we see are just people talking to each other about stuff, right? And so it's like, it's not so easy to just put it into like, is this factual? Is this not factual? Is this fiction? And, and we have to, we have to understand that information is complex and some there's bias, there's perspective. um, There's all of these things we have to think about. So maybe, I don't know, like we have to ask ourselves important questions that are not just, is this true? Right? Like there's other questions we could be asking. It's so interesting to me because I feel like aside from the political, the deep fakes and the Russian stuff, this conversation, I think, also um, took up a lot of momentum with the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. um, because all of a sudden I think women and work all of a sudden, you know, you look at your entire perspective on the world and how much it was set up by white men. Um, and I know even last week I talked about, you know, the New York Times redoing all these obituaries from people who are overlooked. Mm-hmm. And I know, Andrea, you were saying how like the news used to just present the news. But to Michelle's point, like it was white men deciding what went on the news that night um, and how that was presented. And it it did skew your whole view of the world. Right. And we know how Hillary Clinton was covered versus other people during the election. And I think this generation, at least I see with my kids, and maybe it's also because they know that Instagram is so fake, like in terms of literally watching people they know post Instagram pictures and videos, um, they are so much more skeptical now about what the point of view is. It's not that they're worried that things are fake as much as like who's telling the story. I do feel like this generation is getting that message of who told the story. And I, it's so important. And I know... Um, what just the Watchmen that just premiered on HBO, there was a huge uproar, right? Because that whole there's a whole opening scene 
um, on what happened in Tulsa um, with the whole burning down of the entire black community there, the wealthy, the black Wall Street, whatever it was. And people had never heard of that. And there was this huge uproar online on that that was fake because <laughs> they'd never been taught that in history class. Mm. Um, and so I, I do think this is a moment for people to question a lot that they've been taught or haven't been taught. Um, I, I think you make a good, yeah, I think you make a good point, Rebecca, because I do find that students, and I think that's because, um, you know, the educations, like there's a lot of really good teachers around, right? There's a lot of good teachers that are teaching critical thinking skills and, and you know, inquiry and a, a reflection and, and to question. And I, I agree. I feel like this generation is growing up in a world where they've had to question what was real. They've had to question perspective from the beginning. And I think, you know, what we're seeing from the older generation is a, is a group of people that grew up where if they saw it in print, it was fact. If they, if Walter Cronkite told them it was true. And the truth is, is that we could easily do an analysis of 1970s newspapers and assess the bias and the perspective and all of those things. So it wasn't even, you know, they just, but we didn't know to question then. So I, Mm -hmm. I do feel optimistic. Um, I I don't know how I get through the day if I didn't. And I think it's mainly because of the work that I see happening in media literacy education around the country and the organizations that are, doing just absolutely extraordinary work. Like I'm in conversation with everyone from, you know, uh, PEN America to, um, to, like I said, PBS Student Reporting Lab, the Museum, News Literacy Project, all of these, um, all of these amazing organizations that are having incredible reach um, with this work. And so I feel optimistic because um, four years ago, even I should say three years ago, I wasn't getting a lot of traction and now I simply can't keep up with the amount of interest and desire to help us and our work. So to me, that has to mean that we're asking the right questions, right? That has to, that has to mean that we're trying to solve some problems here um, because we weren't willing to have those conversations four or five years ago. I just, yeah, I hope schools start rolling. I mean, like, you know, as if schools need like another thing on their plate, but it seems like such a space for, um, librarians and yes for... oh, I should, yeah that's another thing like the yeah. librarian the work that's being done I do have to say that after this Reuters event that we had um these four girls came up to me and they're four African-American girls and they were so frustrated about the fact that they feel like the the answer to all of our problems about diversity in the media is for more diverse populations to be involved with the media. And they were like, why is it our problem that the media is like, it was such an interesting conversation. And then we were just talking about this idea of like, you know, black history month, like how absurd that is that they only get a month, like, you know, Christopher Columbus and all of these things. Like I just was so fascinated. And you know, I think one thing that social media and the information ecosystem as it exists has allowed them to just find information that wasn't accessible for us. And I think that's really in a, in a lot of ways is a good thing. Um, we just have to figure out how to educate around it, you know? Right. Right. No, I think it's a great thing too. I think there would have been no Me Too movement, you know, right, without right. it. I think none of those men would have come down. I think all that stuff, you know, is is so important. I mean, even, you know, these talk about reparations and things like that. Like yes. if who reads the Atlantic, like, you know, there would have been a little subset of people that read ta Coates and it would have gone away. Totally. Instead, right. And instead it's this massive conversation, but I don't know. It's so funny because I'm already seeing the difference in like the Bernie coverage versus the Elizabeth Warren coverage. And I'm already uh-huh. like motherfucker. Like, yeah. Have, <laughs> we learned, like, have we learned nothing? Have we learned nothing? Like yeah. it is kind of unbelievable to me. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's it's constant. I just question everything now. Yeah, I'm like, wow, yeah. like we just grew up so screwed, man. Yes. <laughs> like <laughs> we were sold such a bullshit bill of goods. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, <laughs> and thank you for all the work you're doing. Um, we will obviously put a link up to Namely, but also to all the things you talked about, which I think we're going to have to like now go back through this episode of the fine tooth comb and find all those resources for parents. And 
Yeah, so um, let me just name like a couple real quick yeah, that I great. would suggest. Um, my apologies for being kind of all over the place with this. This is the, it's just so complicated and so hard to kind of think through all of this. But when I, when I talk to parents, um, specifically like parent-friendly advice uh, on these things, common sense um, is obviously a great one. Uh, CyberWise is another one that has really great info for parents. And then Raising Digital Natives um, is a great newsletter also. And so those are ones that I suggest. My organization, we're a free membership organization and anyone can be a member if you're interested in diving a little bit more into like media literacy. Um, but those, fo those folks do really good work with parents. That's great. Thank you. And thanks for joining us today. This was a fascinating conversation that I think will have many more parts to it. <laughs> yeah, please. I love chatting. Yeah, we'll continue. Yeah, yes. please. I love chatting with you guys. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, thanks for being here. We will be right back with our Bites of the Week. We are back with our Bites of the Week. Amy, what do you have? Well, mine is kind of weird for me because I've never like worked at a magazine or worked in a newspaper, but I just, I found a video that is so, I don't know, it was, it was posted by a friend of mine who's my same age who said that she also used to work on a magazine in this same way. So like, this is not an incredibly, like, this is how I should explain what it is, but this is how <laughs> things were done not that long ago. It's a video of a woman who used to look, she's, I think she still works for the London Review of Books, but now they do everything on computer. And she was demonstrating how she would paste up the magazine in the 80s, where she would just get like long sheets of copy and ads and, you know, titles and stuff. And she would have to take an X-Acto knife and fit it to a page. And it's like that might seem kind of easy, like just big blocks of magazines. But no, because like they wouldn't do anything to the big strips of text before they would send them to her. So like she'd send them back blocked in and they'd be like, oh, but wait, there are three short words in a row at the ends of lines, which looks funny. Or like here, there's only like a two letter word at the end of this line and then big white space. So then she has to like go back in with her exacto knife, cut out like tiny words or like, you know, even letters and like repaste them on the page and then like make sure everything's even and then tape it down and then that would be photographed for the magazine. And it's just such a, I don't know, it just, it seems like so recently that this was done this way. You know, we're used to just doing everything on computers where everything is like formatted and put into paragraphs and, and columns. And I don't know, it was really neat to watch. It was so painstaking. You're making me laugh because at college, I was the editor of the Syracuse Daily Orange. And <laughs> let me tell you, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many nights we were up till two, three in the morning laying out the front page. Like that, it, like with an exacto really, knife and paste? It really was, you know, like making a board. You make a board and yeah. you move things around. Yeah, yeah, it was... Uh, you know, when we, when I went into radio and we moved towards digital editing, as opposed to, we used to cut tape with a razor blade. Hmm. I mean, razor blades yeah. were, you know, that was it. Every newsroom had boxes and boxes of razor blades, which of course would be outlawed now as a weapon. But we used to cut tape with a razor blade and then have to splice it together. And that's how so I did what, my, when I was a film major, that's what we had to do with our Super 8 tape. Yeah. That's a great film. What you're describing is just making me A, laugh, and B, feel so very old. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, you don't have to be, I guess that's my overall point. You do not have to be old to have worked this way, which just seems so bizarre Thank to you. me. Right. Well, that's how rapid technology happened. Like, right. I remember that is why things like Quark, like those design programs were so revolutionary. People just take them for granted now but even something like what was that precursor to word word perfect yeah when word perfect came out as software the idea that you had word processing software as opposed to your electric typewriter which seemed fabulous um like that was insane like and you had to be trained like you know i tell that story all the time that when my mother-in-law started using microsoft word she had these massive spaces. She couldn't figure out why she had giant spaces in all of her things she was typing. It was because she was hitting the return key uh, at the end of every line. Right. 
Of course, because right. it's just muscle memory. Well, yep. I mean, forget about WordPerfect. I remember when I got my first like word processing machine, which was like the bridge between an electric typewriter and a computer, where it had like maybe four lines on an LCD screen. And just the fact that you could back up and correct something without, you know, whiteout was right. incredible. That's what my husband had in college, and I took him to buy his first computer. Hmm. Our senior year, maybe? Our junior year. I can't remember which it was, but he bought, like, this massive, junk, clunky um, MacBook, yeah. <laughs> basically, <laughs> um, that was, like, you know, encased in, like, eight layers of plastic. <laughs> but, um, yeah. He but had it that. was revolutionary. Listen, was in college, you know, you talk about whiteout in college. I mean, if I made a mistake on typing up a term paper that had to oh, be yeah. perfect, I had to retype the whole page. Oh, my you God. Know, what about that? I don't like... understand how today you just, you know, change a line and that's it. Didn't you have that like sheet of white? stuff that you could like put in there and then like you type yeah. that letter a yeah, bunch of times over but if it was a final it. but if it was a final right, term paper and it needed to look at it couldn't have big blobs of white you know oh it had God. to be right. perfect especially as an english major <laughs> anyway yeah time has changed that's why Quickly. i love technology yeah all right andrea what do you have Okay, so in the vein of our topic today, <laughs> i saw a few people post on facebook this incredible uh, Carly Simon political ad. And so I wanted to do some research and make sure it wasn't fake, um, you know, and do my due diligence before I shared it. And I did find that it's old. This is something that Carly Simon did back in 2016. Um, but she made an ad that today just is so amazing. And I'm so happy to have found it. It was the first time she ever allowed one of her songs to be put toward a political cause. Wow. And so she did You're So Vain <laughs> with all this video of Trump talking and pictures of him. And um, she changed one line in the song where <laughs> I just laughed, where she says, your scarf, it was apricot. She says, your face, it was apricot. <laughs> I just... <laughs> laugh so hard. So we'll have a link to this, uh, a story about it and the video. It is so worth the t one and a half minutes it takes to watch it and just laugh. She tried to warn us. She did. <laughs> Didn't work. But um, I did my due diligence and researched it and it is true. Good so. for you. <laughs> it's legit. Um, my bite this week is from the Washington Post. So hopefully you either subscribe or haven't hit your paywall yet. <laughs> so if you have, wait till, well, no, it's the beginning of the month. So you should be able to hit it again because it's so annoying when we share stuff I know that's behind a paywall. But anyway, the article is called The World's Top Economists Just Made the Case for Why We Still Need English Majors. And it's an entire article about how important the humanities are for all of the new jobs that are happening in tech. <laughs> Hmm. And that people who can think crit critically and creatively and analytically are so in demand because more and more people are just going into computer programming and straight up engineering. And that those are the people who execute, but the people who think of the things to execute <laughs> are the humanities majors. Hmm. Um, so it's a really great article and it talks about all of the very prominent tech CEOs and all these other people who were humanities majors, not tech majors, you know, most famously, of course, is Steve Jobs. But um, it's a really great article because my daughter literally said to me two weeks ago, is it going to be awful if I want to be an English major? Hmm. And I was like, no. And nope. she was nope, like... Nope. Terrified of being because it's really what she loves, and especially this year, she has a phenomenal lit teacher, and she just has really realized how much she loves it. And she's like, "But do I also maybe I should double major with computer programming? You know, like whatever." Um, so it's a really good article. I highly recommend it, and it's a lot to think about for when people think about jobs of the future that the world will always need the storytellers. Well, I'll tell you, I did an article on this uh, for a, a site I write for on, you know, do you have to have a computer science degree to be in, in computers? And I found a whole bunch of CEOs and founders of companies 
um, who were not and who hire based on that. So for instance, Slack, which is wildly, you know, used in so many startups as a communications tool. Um, what's his name? Stuart Butterfield, I think. Um, he was a philosophy major. And he says, you know, this is what I do. I don't just want a bunch of people who understand computers. I want to have people who understand how we use computers and how it can help us in our lives and how to communicate. So you can tell her that, uh, nope, be an English major. I know. That's how I feel, too. And, like, it's interesting because a lot of this article is based on Robert Schiller's book, who, you know, he's one of the most famous economists of all time. And they said to him, like, you're, it sounds like you're advocating for um, more English and history majors. And he said, compartmentalization of intellectual life is bad. Mm. That was basically his case, that you should have this foundation in history and literature and philosophy um, in order to understand what you're doing. And I think it's interesting when we see what's going on in Silicon Valley right now, that all of these ethical mm-hmm. and moral uh you know, issues that maybe if you had a few more philosophy majors um, and history History majors majors, running things, you would have, instead of just coders and engineers who see things in very binary terms, um, we'd be having a more interesting, diverse, um, ethical (laughs) tech community. That is all very useful. And I just want to give readers a tip. If they have hit their paywall and they still want to read it, I, you know, I'm a little ethically um, confused myself on whether this is okay. But I feel like, you know, even if you've read, if you're reading like one past your paywall, you're still seeing ads. So you're still supporting them in a way. But I found that if you Google the exact title, the newspapers still want to rank in Google. So often if you Google the exact title of the article and then click on it in Google, you will get past the paywall. Some people, New York Times shut that down. (laughs) I, I've done it recently. Really? With, um, it well, I, was, I subscribed to the New York Times and the New York Post, right. so I don't remember where I did it. Um, but, you know, sometimes with some things, it, it can still work. Just a tip for right. people. I will also say, just subscribe. It's worth it to support great journalism if we're having this conversation about what is fact-checked and what is true. And um, Subscribe to the New York Times, the Washington Post. Just subscribe to a few people and or, support. Or to your local paper. I mean, I do subscribe to the Times and the Washington Post and the Journal. And yesterday I called the Journal because I was like, you know, this is a lot of money. And um, I, I'd been paying it for like eight months and because my introductory rate stopped. I started a year ago. And they were just like, oh, well, how about this rate? And they dropped the rate by 50%. So I Another said, good okay. Tip. Let's yeah. do that. <laughs> and they also, a lot of those papers, if you have a student um, in your family, have mm-hmm. incredible student rates, like amazing student rates. So check those out too. All right. Well, that is our show for today. You can find links to everything we talked about today on facebook.com slash parenting bites. And of course, parentingbites.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share from wherever you listen to our podcast. And until next week, happy parenting. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is our Parenting Bites disclaimer. Everything we talk about on the show is our own opinion. Any products we recommend, it's our own personal recommendation for entertainment purposes only. If you buy something through our affiliate links or you just happen to buy or see or read or watch something that we've recommended, it's at your own risk.